previously on the deep dive with League Troop. Yeah, I, I just was emotional. I started, you know, vomiting blood, you know, when I got out on the freeway at about 36 kilometres. And I don't remember finishing the race. And still to this day, I don't. And I've never, ever watched that Olympic race. How was your 12 months post um, the games? Because pretty serious injury too. So go through the next 12 months and your training and how that was going. Yeah, well, I didn't know that I'd torn my rectus abdominis. So um, imaging had proved that. Um, I went to Rotterdam in April of um, 2001, ran 210. So I felt like I was back on the cusp. Um I was going to Chicago um, and I was really excited about going to Chicago in 2001, but then I tore my calf and then I just pretty much spiraled a little bit out of control uh, through 2001, oh, sorry, towards the end of 2001 and started 2002 and you now I just started partying and drinking and, you know, just uh, trying to put all my frustrations into things that you didn't have to think about. And, you know, a, a friend of mine at the time sat me down, a guy called Tim Matthews and, you know, he, uh, he was like a manager of a nightclub and I was frequenting it, you know, two or three times a, a week. And, you know, he just basically pulled me aside and was just saying I was being an idiot. Like, what the hell was I doing? You know, like, here I am at this elite athlete. And, you know, he works in a nightclub. You know, he, he, he works with, you know, people that he doesn't want to work with and sees people he doesn't want to see. And I'm one guy that he doesn't want to see in there. And, you know, I sort of had a few few people sort of giving me that uh, that stern, Stern sort of advice, you know, Andrew Lambert, um, you know, physical therapist uh, for Hawthorne and a good friend of mine that I room with, you know, just people in my ear, just like, you know, what the hell are you doing? And I know it sort of took a, a fair bit of work to try and get myself back, but then that sort of led into into Commonwealth Games in 2002 and, and getting me back. And you know, I finished seventh. It was nothing fantastic, but, you know, it got me then to win Zatapec in, in 2002 and, you know, and then set me up for 03 and 04. You know, I went to Lake Biwa in March of 03 and ran my fastest time of 209.49. And, you know, I went to the World Championships and I uh, finished 17th and ran 211 on a broken toe. Uh, and then went to uh, London in 2004 and, you know, finished 6th or 7th and ran 209 uh, on a really, really bad day. And then obviously went to Athens Olympics uh, later that year. So you brushed over those two big races. That was super. So Lake Biwa, the two sub-210 events. And um, tell us about, like, you in ridiculous shape, um, the 209-49. But tell us about the training. Did anything change? Did everything there? You, you were self-coached at this stage, Truby. And then tell us about 04 London where Moners, did he pace you that day and the weather and... Yes, I moved back to Geelong after the Olympics in 2000. Um, you know, again, you know, things can become quite polarizing. So, you know, after the Olympics in Ballarat, you know, it was like, this is Monas, Monas town. You know, it's like, I know, I just, I couldn't see myself being there. It was great to actually, you know, be the apprentice under Mona, but he was always the master. And, um, I was just finding it hard to find my, my own niche. So, you know, I came back to Geelong and, you know, Mona was, was mentoring me. Um, you know, I, I'd see Mona, you know, once every few months and we'd talk about training and racing, but I certainly was devising what training I was going to do. Like I, 
could come to Ballarat and do hills, but if I wanted to stay in Geelong and do reps around Eastern Park, I would. And, you know, I'd have monophyllic, but if I didn't want to do it, I'd do three-minute reps. And, you know, I'd have track workout, but if I didn't want to do deep quarters, I would do hill repeats, you know. So I was sort of mixing and matching, but um, I sort of got caught into this thing, which I'd said to you that, you know, when I had trained with race against Mono, I'd got to a point where it was great training with Mono, but as much as Mono was a mentor, he was also a competitor. You know, he knew what I was doing and he knew what he had to do. He had a coach. And so I sort of always had a guard up um, with that. And so when I did move to Geelong, I didn't really, it wasn't this flowing thing of, yeah, I want you to coach me. I, I still had this guard up because Mono was still competing. You know, like Mono said he retired, but he never retired, you know. And so I sort of, you know, and this is just, it's all on me. There was just this trust issue that I couldn't give 100% of myself to Mono because I always felt like Mono kept his cards close to his chest and I just, I couldn't give myself to that, you know. And so, you know, it was great having him as a mentor and, you know, and he he was there like in some pivotal moments, you know, like when I went to Lake Biwa in 2003, Mono was pacing and, you know, Mono paced up to 30 kilometres and, you know, I remember Mono, you know, pulling off to the side of the road and, you know, Mono's screaming out like, you've got this and I, I said to him I said I'm breaking the Australian record today and I, like I, I took off and you know I got hit by a truck at 34k and the wheels fell off and ended up running 209 and you know you know I went to London and then I started changing things right so when I um, ran 209.49 you know I was still doing the same things and things were very simplistic twice a day you know running 200 kilometers a week and then I went to Paris World Championships and three or four days before the race, I broke my toe. Um, I stubbed my toe into a suitcase and, you know, I didn't know that I'd broken my toe. Um, I'd gone in and my toe had flared up and uh, they decided that I should go to, to Paris to get x-rays. And so the team doctor was already there. Andrew Lambert, who I mentioned was my best friend and he was a physical therapist and the guy I lived with, he flew over there with me and, uh, they did the x-rays and um, when I got called into the room, I just got told, oh, look, you know, it's bruising. Um, if we tape it all up, you know, you'll be fine. You'll still be able to race. Um, you know, so that's all I thought it was, was bruising. Um, I run 2.11, finished 17th. And I found out after the race, I had a broken toe. Um, and what I found out afterwards was that the the doctor and Andrew Lambert agreed that there was nothing that I could do for a broken toe and they could treat a broken toe and a bruised toe or a, a bruised capsule exactly the way. And if I didn't know that it was broken, I wouldn't think that it was broken. And they were hundred percent right because the only time it really hurt was when I went up the Champs de Elysee and down the Champs de Elysee because of the rocky cobblestones and it hurt. Like it was excruciating, but I'm just like, it's just a bruise, harden up, like stop being weak about this, you know? And so it was after I crossed the line when they were just like, damn, you are a tough son of a bitch. Like you ran on a broken toe. And I'm like, oh my God, I was furious. But then, you know, like a few days later, you're just like, ah, oh, okay, well, that's pretty cool. But pretty during cool. that time, like I was like, all right, I, I need to change things around. Like I'm, I'm doing all these things and I'm 209. I, I know I can run 207. So I started training three times a day. I started like doing 150 mile weeks and no, actually I'll tell a lot. I was doing the three times of training leading into the Sydney Olympics. And that's how I ended up getting that stress fracture. I decided in 2003 and towards the end of 2003, I wasn't going to train three times a day. 
but I was going to change my training around to where I was going to be running 240 kilometers a week. You know, my easy day was going to be Monday, Thursday, and Saturday, where I did 10 miles in the morning or 16K in the morning and 16K at night. Um, I was going to be doing two and a half hour runs on a Sunday. At the last 30 minutes, I was going to run close to 10K race pace. And so, sorry, three minutes a kilometer, 30 minutes for 10K. So I started training harder than I had, you know, and I went into uh, London that year unbelievably fit. Like I went to um, Beppu Marathon to pace a half marathon. They wanted me to run 64 minutes, 64.30, and I just did it off heavy training, and it was the easiest thing I'd done in the world. Like I just, I cruised through it. And so when I went to London, I was confident that I could run 207. Um we had, um, you know, pacemakers set up and, you know, we went through halfway in 63.10. I went through 30 kilometers in 90.06. So I'm on 206 pace. Um, unfortunately, once you went through the Tower Hotel, you know, the last six or seven kilometers, you run up along the Thames and it was into a howling headwind. It was bucketing down with rain and I just couldn't get gears. I was running with Stefano Baldini, who ended up winning the Olympics that year. And, Stefano is a short, nuggety type of guy, and I'm just long and thin. And he opened up, you know, probably 20, 30 meters on me going across uh, where the Tower Bridge was. And once we got up onto that, um, onto the Thames, I couldn't break it up. And then I was like 50 meters behind, 80 meters behind. And it was like taking two steps forward and eight steps back. And we all ended up tiring. Like I ended up running 2958 and dropping three minutes. Stefano dropped two minutes and was like 28 high. Um, everyone went backwards and, you know, I was frustrated, you know, like I, I'd run this unbelievable race. I really believed that I could run 207 on that day. Um, and so once I got back from London, I decided that I was going to train harder again. I don't know how you can train harder, um, but I didn't take the recovery that I should have and I didn't absorb what I should have. And I then trained like a madman getting ready for, for Athens. And I was, um, heading up to, to Ballarat and training in a heat chamber for a couple of weeks. And then, you know, I was coming back home and, you know, uh, basically trying to get ready to head back to altitude. And then I would train in a heat chamber and, you know, I just, I overcomplicated a very simple process. And by the time I got to Athens, you know, I was flat. I was a car that had five gears and on that day only four were working and I got my ass handed to me. Well, yeah, look, it's, it's hard. It would have been hard physically because you knew the shape you were in in April of 04. Um, that London race, that was the one um, that, yeah, no doubt, you, 206 was on the cards. And on a normal day, you'd probably break the Australian marathon record. Hey, there's nothing wrong with being short and nuggety, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, Baldini, it must be an Italian trait. Um, look, Baldini went to win gold. Tell us, take us through, succinct quickly, the Athens Games. Um, wasn't meant to be, even though the last 24 months you've been in ridiculous shape, the top four or five marathoners in the world. Um, and take us through that that period of that day in Athens and, and give the listeners a bit of an indication of where you're at. Why well, just get a beer and join your mate, I reckon. You can go for a beer break or you're right to keep going. No, no, I'm good. <laughs> um, look, Athens was unbelievable. Um, Athens... I mean, it was the home of the Olympic marathon, you know, so I got to run from Marathonis to the Panthenaic Stadium against not only the, the world's bad athletes at the time, but people that have run that route since 1896. And so 
for me, it was like, and obviously going way back to um, obviously um, pre pre game. So um, to head out there and to be, you know, for a marathoner, it's the home of of the Olympics, and you know, it's the home of the marathon. So um, there was it was a very nostalgic um, moment. We got to stay out at Marathonis. Uh, Steve Monaghetti uh, was out there with me, and uh, he actually got up that morning and went and ran the marathon. Um, because Mon is a, an emotional type of person. So, um, you know, just running, running that route. I mean, it was hot. Um, it felt dry. Um, I, I had a solid, solid run. Um, you know, I got to run 217 or 218. Um, the pace, um, for me was just, it was the same. Like I knew I was in trouble early because there was all these surges taking place and I couldn't counteract any of the surges. Um, normally when you're on top of things and you're feeling great, you know, a surge happens and you can counteract it. And I just couldn't counteract any surges. And I just basically ran from start to finish with the same gear. Uh, running into the stadium was unbelievably amazing. Um, you know, I, I got to uh, see Janos Kouros and, you know, all these unbelievable people. And, you know, then I went met family and friends. And, you know, I think I have the best after party story when it comes to, uh, to Athens and, you know, it was just, um, you know, finding everyone, you know, and then we decided I was going to go home and have a shower. Um, so we walked out and as we were walking out in, uh, in uh, Athens, there's these little tin sheds that are set up on every street corner and they basically sell alcohol and soda and cigarettes. And so one of my friends was like, why don't we have a beer? And I really wasn't in any rush. You know, I just run, you know, 42 kilometers and uh, it was hot. You know, I was, I was pretty knackered. And so uh, we had a beer. And, uh, it went down like nails. It was unbelievably painful. And so then they were just like, why don't we have another one? And I'm like, all right, let's have another one. So we had another one. Uh, we drunk that shed out of beer. So then we moved up to the next street corner. And so all of a sudden the beers weren't tasting as harsh and the beers were starting to taste pretty good. And we drank that shed corner out of beer. And then we moved up to the next one and I'm still in my Olympic uniform. I'm still got my singlet shorts race number race shoes on and granted we're on my way back to you know my wife's house to have a shower so we could go out and then it's like 12 12 30 at night people are hungry so we decided that we you know go and get some gyros and so we're eating them and and we decided to go to a nightclub and so we go to a nightclub and there's a picture of me at three o'clock in the morning uh still in my shorts singlet race shoes on the dance floor with a guy called Wayne Larden, um, who's, who's, who runs the, the Sydney Running Festival. By that stage, we were on vodkas. We were, we were off beers. Uh, and we somehow made our way home at around about 6 a.m. So um, got home, went to bed. Um, I woke up the next morning still in my shorts, singlet, and race shoes. And we have a tradition in Australia that uh, the next morning after the marathon, you would go out for a 20-minute run. You would run to the highest point that's possible and you would look the bald eagle in the eye and you would make a pact to the bald eagle as to whether you would continue for another olympic cycle or whether you were done or you know what your plans were for the next year so there was my wife and a friend and there was mona and we decided that we would run to the top of the acropolis um so we've had a couple of hours sleep uh i'm still in a gear that i'd raced in the night before and partied in the night before and we ran to the top of the Acropolis and, uh, you know, I made my peace that I was going to try and make another four years to, to the Beijing Olympics. And, um, 
I remember standing up there and this Japanese guy comes up to me and he's like, photo, photo. I didn't know what he was like saying, but he wanted a photo. Um, and what happened was he then showed me his photo and he scrolled through photos of me finishing in the Panthenaic Stadium 12 hours earlier and then wanted a photo with me 12 hours later, smelling like a brewery and still in the same singlet shorts and shoes that I'd raced in the night before. So um, that ended up being a pretty legendary story that was told for uh, for many, many years. I love that we've heard that then on, the, on this podcast because anyone that knows me personally or knows me knows how much I um, would love that story. Truby is a reason why Aussies love you because the toughness, determination and the ability to drink beers till 6am and vodkas, of course, is uh, one of your many strengths. I love you, great man. That's fantastic. Coming off O4, did you have some time in Europe? Could you have some time out? It was a holiday. Did you have a holiday at all? A few weeks. Could you chill out for yeah, so um, 04, we, um, we do in 04. No, I don't think we holidayed after 04. Um, we came home. I obviously was extremely disappointed with a, with a bad Olympics. Um, and then uh, I had run at that stage a thousand days without a day off. I think I'd run like a thousand, might have been 1100 days without a day off. And uh, so I'd come home and I'd already started mapping out what I was going to do. I was going to do Fukuoka and, you know, I was going to set myself up in 2006. I was getting you know, married in uh, uh, 2006. And so I ended up uh, doing my calf um, about six weeks after, um, after Athens. And then that sort of led into 2005. I couldn't get healthy to save myself. So I was injured all 2005, um, sort of went through a bit of a mini spiral uh, like I did after uh you know Rotterdam in 2001 except it was a lot more magnified at that point um because I couldn't get to the start line of any race healthy and I kept breaking down and um I ended up being pointed to a guy called Shane Hamill uh who's a soft tissue therapist um in Geelong and I went and saw him and basically I just needed complete time out no running needed to get uh myself healthy and um, we'd started this long process of just no running and complete rehabilitation for about three, four months. Um, so that ended up all of 2005. Then 2006, and what I tried to make the Commonwealth Games in 2006. And so I foolishly went to Fukuoka Marathon at the end of 2005, still not healthy, knowing that I was injured, but I just had this stupidity and this thought in the back of my head that I'm Lee Troop and that I'm going to... I'm going to get the qualifying time. And I went there and I wasn't healthy and I was pretty much shot uh, four kilometers into the race. Um, I still finished it and ran 229. It was snowing and it was unbelievably uh, horrendous. Um, and I remember sitting in the middle of the track in Fukuoka with the snow just pouting down and just sitting there with my head between my legs, knowing that I wasn't going to be running at the home Commonwealth Games in Melbourne. And, you know, like, what the hell was I going to do? And, you know, luckily, um, you know, my practitioner was there and uh, you can certainly sort out a lot of the world's problems over a few beers and a few sakis. And we just decided at that point that I needed to just stop running. I'd run through 2005, just completely battered. Um, I was limping on one leg and just I just wasn't healthy. So um, that was it. Knowing that I wasn't going to run Commonwealth Games, I decided to uh, to stop running. Um, 
you know, I got married in, in 2005 and we were, were expecting in 2006. And so it just allowed me to put time into, into other areas where I could get healthy. And you know, as I started to feel like I was coming back, I decided that rather than just shoot straight into, you know, running the big major marathons around the world, that I would actually try and do something local. So I had handpicked to run the Gold Coast Marathon. And that was in July. So it was going to give me plenty of time to, uh, to get healthy. Uh, being a, an elite athlete, you know, I get paid well to, to race abroad. You know, there's not a lot of money in Australia, but Gold Coast, uh, were going to pay me that year. And so it sort of set me up for me to take some deep breaths, get myself healthy, welcome our baby daughter into the world in, um, February and then set myself on that. So. Um, you know, went to Gold Coast. I was able to win that and run 2.14 pretty much solo. Um, and then the remainder of that year, I won the Australian Cross Country Championships a few months later, and then I won Zatapec again. So I ended up winning three Australian titles in uh, in six months, and that certainly got me back in with a chance of trying to make my third Olympics in 2008. That's a good year, 06. Now, 07, the world champs and the like. Now, I'm missing you, I'm sorry. 07, did you go to the world champs? No, I didn't. I um I went to Paris Marathon in 07 to qualify for uh, the Olympics in 08, and I just had a horrendous, a horrendous race. It was 33 degrees. Um, I'd never run the Paris Marathon before, and I I'd been I was a little precious. I'd done a lot of the city marathons, where you know you have your own drinks table and you have your own drink spot and you have your own spotter and you know everything is like really good. And I went to Paris Marathon, and all the elite men and all the elite women were on one table. And so it was just a free for all. So I went through the first 5k and I couldn't find my drink. And I look up and there's a Moroccan drinking my drink. And so I went up and I punched him in the arm and I got to the second, I got to 10k. There wasn't a drink there for me. I got to 15k. I knocked it off the table and I was, I was running 206 pace by the time I got to 16k, 17k in 33 degree weather and uh, the wheels come off and it was. It was such, it was such a shit fest. Like it just, things just went bad and I hadn't pulled out of a race at that point. And I remember getting to 25 kilometers and I was spent. I had nothing and I decided I was going to stop. And the French are very like motivating. They're very passionate and they're like screaming and yelling at me. And I was all right, this is a sign. I can't, I can't stop. I've got to do this. I've got to finish it. So I took off running and I got to 30 K and I was like, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm walking off. And, um, I, I was trying to work my way through the crowd and I knew where 30K was and I knew where the finish was and I knew I just had to walk through this like little little town to get there. But somehow I got lost and I ended up in this little utopia where everyone was going to church. Like these people didn't even know the Paris Marathon was on and I'm trying to ask for directions and no one knew what I was saying and I ended up popping out at about the 35-kilometer mark. I was like, ah, oh, shit, I've got to finish the run. So... I ended up running in and then they're trying to put medals on me and I couldn't take a medal because I'd obviously walked off the course and I cut a few kilometers off and I walked through to the presentation area. There was no elite athletes. There was no elite athlete coordinator. I couldn't find my friend. So then I walked back outside and then I got stuck outside. Like it, it was just crazy. Anyway, I got back inside and I ended up finding like uh, my friend Shane Hamill, um, you know, several hours after the race and we made our way back to the hotel and I was like, shoot like i'm not making a third olympics like i'm i'm done um but you know it was just the whole hysteria of things like 
I um I'd certainly not chiseled myself for for some hardship. I had um been treated um quite well, quite precious uh through my marathon career and so that certainly um was a, a kick in the pants and then I actually went to Berlin uh in 2007 um to qualify for the Olympics which is where I did and that itself was just another another crazy day like you know I went out with the second pack and the second pack was to run 64 minutes and they went like 255 case 310 pace 257 301 and it was so up and down and I got dropped by that second pack at um about 18 kilometers and I had conceded at that point that I wasn't going to be making uh, a third Olympics, but I figured, you know, I'm there. I need to finish the race off, you know, like if I'm not making the Olympics. I may as well see it out as best I can. And anyway, um, I don't know what happened. Like I just put my head down and I just kept grinding and grinding and grinding. And then anyway, I remember at about 30 kilometers, someone told me I was ninth. I was like, what? No. Anyway, I ended up running fifth. And uh, I ran 2.10.31, which qualified me for uh, for my third Olympics. But it was just one of those ones where, like I said, I just, I'd done the work. I had sort of, unlike Paris, like in Paris, I gave up. But at Berlin, I was like, all right, I'm, it seems like I'm not going to make it, but I'm going to make sure that this is the, the best race I can do to, to close the chapter on. And then yeah, I ended up running 2.10 and qualified for Beijing. You are one tough bastard. We love you, Troopy. I'll tell you what, so coming into 08, now Beijing, there was a lot of conjecture, um, for those that don't remember. Lots and lots of, um, I guess, controversy about the air quality. Clearly the heat was going to be an issue. The marathon is obviously the hardest event, some some would argue, in the world. So Beijing Olympics come around. Now, Gabriel Celeste, who's the best in the world, and some would say the best ever, chose to run on the track for 10,000. He had some aspirants and some other stuff going on. Um, when we when I looked up this interview, Drewby, we're on Scott, uh, Zoom. So this thing I sent to you the other day, do you remember doing that article on Herald Sun? I remember do. Yep. Yeah. So I cut, I cut it. The listeners obviously can't see that. I cut this out as a young bloke um, in Frankston. I cut this out. I used to cut out a couple of things of footballers and, and uh, my favourite runners, just keeping, just for motivation for my own training. And um, Truby was always one of your faves. And, and it's an unbelievable article on the back page of the Herald Sun. Uh, it's, it's a paper in Melbourne for those guys out of Victoria. And this quote, mate, I just want to say that it's got a picture of you kissing young Macy, which is a gorgeous pic. You're in an altitude chamber you used to sleep in before Beijing. You used to go and heat in the heat chambers to train in as well, the humidity chambers, but sleep in an altitude tent. And this quote from you, buddy, this is probably where you're at at the time, which as an athlete, I loved it, but um, not sure. If that means I'm going to have some form of complication from the air quality in Beijing, I'm going to have health issues that would be with me for the rest of my life, and so be it. I haven't spent 25 years of my life to bypass Olympic Games. You're an intense unit. I, I love it. I loved it. I still do. And I'm stoked I found it because I've only got probably half a dozen articles that I cut out still and I've kept that one of you so it's ironic that we're chatting today tell us about that period in your life the altitude tents the heat chambers just the risking and all like we got Macy and, and Freya obviously at home so tell us about that talk yeah I mean I'd lived a, a great single life a lot of my career traveling the world and going to St. Moritz and you know training in Boulder Colorado and then um you know when I went to Sydney I mean I obviously got injured in Sydney it was just a, a situation that happened but 
I put so much emphasis on Athens and Athens like trained like a lunatic, you know, wanted to be the best and, you know, had gone over to St. Moritz and had gone to Boulder and, you know, I just cooked myself. So I decided in 2008, being older, that I was going to use a lot of sports science. So I was going to use the uh, altitude tent uh, in my house for three weeks and then I'd travel to Ballarat to use the heat chamber for three weeks and I'd be back and forth. You know, I had a, a young daughter and wife and so I couldn't exactly just take off. So I wanted to look for something different. Um, but unfortunately, it just didn't happen. I mean, you know, I, I felt like a rat in a cage. I mean, there's a great line in that where, you know, just all my life I felt like a rat in a cage and I just was like just living this lifestyle of in bed at 9 o'clock, I would sleep 9 hours and I'd sleep at 9,000 feet. I'd do that for three weeks and then I'd go to Ballarat and I'd chain in this heat chamber to, you know, replicate, you know, 30 degrees and 95% humidity and just I didn't recover. Um, and I just kept, you know, I, I was doing the same things, but the difference between Athens, Athens, like I trained hard, but I loved it. Like I didn't know I'd cooked myself until I raced, but I loved it. Going into Beijing, I was using sports science and I hated it. Like I'm not that type of guy. I'm an extrovert. You know, I like to be around people. I like to have fun and I'd isolated myself and I was just doing everything robotically. And I remember Mona telling me, you know, after the race in Beijing, he goes, it was like, I was so relieved to get on the plane to go to the race, but I'd already ran the race. Um, and that's what happened. Like I, I blew up 17 kilometers in, like I've never blown up 17 kilometers into a race in my life, you know, and it just, I don't know, like I, again, I didn't, I didn't withdraw and yeah, just, you know, I, the three worst races I've got in my career are three Olympic games. And it really sucks. It really sucks because that's the pinnacle. That's what you train for. That's what you live for. That's what you spend every moment wanting to have. Like you see the moments of people crossing the finish line as a winner and that's what you want, you know. And for me, I just wanted a top 10. Um, but I look at the three Olympics now, obviously much, much older. I never went in balance. Like I had the physical attributes, but I didn't have the mental and emotional attribute. And that's where, you know, having that person that stops you from doing too much or stop you from doing things that were too crazy, you know, it just, again, like I, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And that was just me. And you know, I don't have any regrets. I mean, it is what it is, but you know, I'm, I know we'll go further on talking about my coaching, but I think that's what makes me a great coach. You know, I certainly make sure that my athletes don't do what I did. Um, and I tell them there isn't one thing that you're thinking about that I never thought about or I didn't do. You know, and we just got to keep it simple. Like simplicity is key. You know, kiss, keep it simple, stupid is the top thing to to go with. So um, after Beijing, it was extremely demoralizing. Um, I went on a trip. You know, we went to the US and went to Vegas and went to uh, Miami and went to San Francisco. And, you know, at that point, I decided I was probably going to spend one more year and retire. You know, I certainly felt like a failure as an athlete. And uh, two marathons I hadn't done was Boston Marathon and New York Marathon. So I just decided, you know, we went on the Beijing wall uh, the next day, uh, Mona, my wife and everyone, we talked about before, you know, you've got to find the highest point, you make a pact. And I didn't make a pact that I wanted to make a fourth Olympics. Um, I certainly didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, just walking the Beijing wall was one of the most amazing experiences. I mean, it wasn't like we went where every single person went. Uh, this is another great troopology uh, situation. My wife had found this person that said they could take us to this remote place um, by, via van. We'd have to be picked up at a certain time. 
And so we got picked up in the early hours and we got driven out to this place and like the guy gets out of the car and he removes these plastic trees and then we drive on this dirt road and he stops and he gets out and closes close it off so no one could see it from the road. And we drive up this rocky, rocky path which says, you know, no trespassing. And anyway, they walk us up to this remote place in the middle of nowhere and they basically just say you've got to walk about five kilometres and then there will be someone there to meet you and they will meet you down in a paddy field to take you back. And we walked like up and down where there was no one, like we passed no one. It was like, you know, everyone goes to the tourist spot. So there's like thousands of people going up and down. We didn't pass anyone. You know, you got Mongolia and China and you're just looking at the wall. And I know I just, at that point, I was just like, this is amazing. Like this, this is different than Athens because Athens was crazy. This was like, this had this puristic feel to it. And I just, I didn't know if I wanted to run anymore. I knew that I was going to be heading on this trip to the US and I was going to make a decision on that trip when we went to the US, what I was going to do. And so anyway, we did all that and we, um, we, we flew to the US and I got to the US and as an athlete, you don't, everyone says, you know, take a few weeks, don't think, but you don't think you're thinking 24 hours after it, right? You're thinking in the hours after it and you just can't switch that, that brain off. And Anyway, I decided that, you know, two marathons I'd never done was Boston and New York and I wanted to do them. Um, and so I said to my wife at the time, why don't we move to the US for a year? Um, I'll do Boston and I'll do New York. I don't know why New York was always the last marathon I ever wanted to do. I just, you know, it's Frank Sinatra, you know, the, the song New York, New York. It's always the closing act. Um, and so, yeah, when we were in the States, that's when we decided that we would move to Boulder um, in early 2009. And I would spend a year, and then I would retire at the uh, at the end of two thousand and nine. And of course, that didn't happen, but that was the plan. I guess yeah, you've done a nice little segue into the, I guess part two of this podcast. Oh, is that only part one? Shit. I reckon that might be part one. We'll see how we go through. Because <laughs> I thought we'd be up to part four. <laughs> but the listeners like like me will be enthralled with that. Like I like to go deep, and um, I really appreciate you going so deep. And I think um. Like running nerds will, will love what we're about to go into in this, the coaching and the methodology and that. But I think most people will love just hearing the story behind the man. And that's a really um, you've gone deep, lots of hardships. And what look, it's not it's not all. But everyone would gloss over it. Oh, he's a two oh nine man. He, he possibly could have been the, the fastest marathon ever. One of only five blokes to to break two ten. All that kind of stuff. But you just went deep on everything and. And lots of hardships as well um, as an athlete. Tell us, Australia at the time, 08, 09, you, did you have a feeling you wouldn't come back when you got on that plane? Oh, no. I honestly thought that I would be gone for a year and I'd be back. And, you know, we were pretty much, you know, consigned to that. And, um, you know, I ran Boston Marathon and Boston Marathon is just, it's an amazing race. Like it had been going over 100 years. You know, I grew up watching De Costello, you know, and Mona ran it in 96 and I trained with Mona leading into it. And, you know, it's not just the history of the elite athletes. It's the history of the thousands and thousands and thousands of athletes that have ran it. And I don't think people really comprehend. If you look at a lot of marathons, a lot of those courses have changed over time and they're not the original courses that they were when they first started. But Boston has stayed true. It starts in Hopkinton. And it finishes on Boylston Street. It hasn't changed. And so I went out there and I got really caught in the whole euphoria of it. Like it rekindled something in me that made me just realize that, you know, 
running is running, you know, and at the end of the day, it's what motivates you. It's what fuels you. It's not what you do for other people. It's what you do for yourself. And I ran Boston Marathon and I stupidly said to my wife after it, I want to try and make a fourth Olympics. Um, <laughs> I mean, I didn't make a fourth Olympics, but it certainly set the catalyst of like, I don't want to go home. I want to make it here. I want to see if I can do it like Mona has done it, Deke's done it. Um, I want to I want to see if I can do it. Um, when you say Deke's done it, Mona's done it, top 10 and four Olympics. Correct. You know, and so that was pretty much it. But, you know, then um, I got injured and then, you know, the rest of 2009 didn't, didn't happen. I didn't run, didn't run New York. I put New York off because I didn't want to, um, you know, do that. And then 2011, um, I had got myself into unbelievable shape. Like I was like ready to, you know, try and make a, um, make a, a second, uh, sorry, a fourth Olympics. And, you know, I, um, I'm just trying to recall, I think so 2009, some reason ah no i i left i left something out so in um 2009 i got uh got injured and then um in 2010 i was starting to get going and get back into into some training and i decided i'd run the uh the sydney running festival so wayne laden had um invited me to come across but we were due to have twins so we thought we'd come home have the twins be surrounded by family support for you know six months and I would run Sydney, like that's what I was training for. And, you know, I was in great shape. You know, I thought, well, you know, we'll just throw everything we've got at it. And uh, unfortunately, when I flew uh, to Australia, I uh, ended up getting a pulmonary embolism on my lung and I ended up in hospital. And uh, as a result of having the blood clot on my lung, I obviously couldn't run. Um, and that sort of paid the rest of 2010. You know, I was I was out. So then 2011, I started to, you know, get myself going again and I decided I was going to run London Marathon and I got myself in really good shape. You know, I ran the New York City half about four weeks before and I ran 63.10. I beat Brian Hall and, you know, quite a few others and I was an old fart. I think I might have been about 10th or 11th. I can't really recall, but I ran unbelievably well. Um, and then I flew to London and uh, and I ran London Marathon and London Marathon just didn't play out the way I would have liked. Um, you know, basically we dropped the pacemakers that we were supposed to have. Um, and then I was on my own after about 10 miles. And, um, you know, I was trying to go out there to run 210, 11, which was probably way too aggressive. And then considering the fact that I'd just run a 63-minute half marathon four weeks before, um, I cooked myself and I ended up stopping at 30K. Um, and then, you know, trying to, work out okay what will i do you know how am i going to try and qualify um you know i decided i would uh run um gold coast marathon and anyway that didn't that didn't happen as well and you know it just i tried to get everything right leading into 2012 and uh just nothing nothing clicked um you know i ran prague and that didn't happen and so anyway i ended up you know having numerous attempts to make the Olympic Games in 2012 and it didn't happen. Um, but then I still kept running, you know, after that. So, you know, there hadn't been any talk of retirement. Uh, I turned 40. Um, so then I went and ran the Boston Marathon uh, and I ended up winning the Masters that year. Uh, ran a, an unbelievably great 217 and finished 10th. Uh, but that was the year the Boston bombings 
happened. And so that derailed any sense of satisfaction. Uh, we had no presentations. We, we had nothing. So, um, I basically, you know, tried to get myself up through the course of that year. Um, I realized that I was probably at the lowest ebb of running. Um, so I wanted to run New York at the end of 20, uh, 2015. And, uh, no, hang on, let me get this right. Sorry. I wanted to run New York at the end of 2013. Um, and then just completely retire. Um, but then they had Hurricane Sandy come through. And so New York weren't bringing in any elites. And so at that point, I just decided that, you know, my running career was done. Um, I certainly took Boston really, really hard. Um, just there were just so many hardships that come from that. And our hotel ended up being a command center for, um, for the army and for the sheriff's department and the FBI and the CIA. And so, we were probably privy to too many things that we should have um, been privy to. And I know I just, I, you know, still to this day, just still can't believe what, what happened. And um, so anyway, yeah, Hurricane Sandy come in. So I thought my career was done. Um, and then I happened to be at the USA track and field indoor championships, uh, which was 2015. So I've been coaching for about three years at that point and uh, had an athlete there and Dave Monty, who was the elite athlete coordinator, just tapped me on the shoulder and said, do you still want to have your last race be uh, New York? I was like, oh, hell yeah, I do. Of course I do. So that gave me motivation. Um, I then reached out to Boston and said, look, I want to come back and defend my title. Sadly, I'd done no training and I'd only had six weeks to get myself right. Um, so I went to Boston and uh, two weeks, uh, sorry, two days after Boston, I ended up having another pulmonary embolism on my, on my lung and had another blood clot. Um, so I got put back on, uh, thinning medication. And, uh, so by that point, I just wanted to see my career out and just survive to New York. And that's pretty much what happened. I was able to get to New York and, you know, I just love the whole atmosphere of New York and I'll never forget crossing the finish line and turning back into the, into the skyline of where all the buildings were and giving it a kiss and just thanking, not, not New York, but just thanking, you know, everyone that had been involved in my career for just, you know, being beside me and being for me and being with me. So it was, uh, it was pretty cool. Literally a 20 year elite professional career comes to an end that day in New York. But, um, yeah, you've glossed over that very quickly. We've got the coaching and the, the really some pretty cool stuff to come. So I won't go too deep into that, but you, you went through a fair bit even in your last couple of big city marathons considering. Um, you weren't there to win. Um, you, geez, you went for a bit those last couple. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as an athlete, you, I think for me, I realized how personal running was. And so this was actually me, you know, and it was me fighting for, you know, what I had. And, you know, New York, I, I wore my Geelong singlet, which I'm, um, unbelievably proud, you know, to have started that club up and to, you know, have created you know, the dynasty that uh, the Geelong Region Cross Country Club has. And for me, it was important to wear that. You know, I wanted to to be proud. And when I ran my last Australian marathon, which was on the Gold Coast, I wore my Chul singlet, my club club singlet, you know, a club that I'd been with since I was about, you know, 10 years of age. And so, you know, they're things that I was passionate about and realizing that when you're wearing that uniform, it's a badge of honor. It's like wearing the Australian uniform and having the coat of arms. Um but it all starts at that singular level, you know, at a, at a club level. And so, yeah, like I said, I was very fortunate to be able to see out my career, not the way that I would uh, want it to, but the way I liked it to. So 
Um, so there was, you know, some satisfaction in, in regards to that. Um, but it allowed me to just, you know, get some closure uh, to then focus on, you know, the next phase of my life, which was going to be coaching. You've spoken a lot of, um, I guess, running neck as we spoke about Boston um, being the absolute pinnacle in the marathon, I agree. Ballarat, you spoke about as a running necker here in Victoria. Tell us about Boulder. Um, Boulder's a pretty special place for those out of um, a Colorado who don't know. Like, I love the history of Boulder running and those kind of things and the, the um, University of Colorado and all that stuff. Tell us about Boulder and go from there and how you started Boulder Track Club and, and all these kinds of things because it's a really special story. And I reckon, um, I reckon this is going to enthrall a lot of people because the Boulder Track Club now is, is yeah, you've done so well, buddy. So take us through that. Oh, I'm not associated with the Boulder Track Club anymore, but uh, that's another another story. But yeah, like I I came over here because of Dick Costello. Like Dick Costello was um, extremely um, you know parochial about me at the time. I'd been travelling to London and back, and I was getting a bit stale. And you know he had recommended that I come to Boulder, so I came out to Boulder in uh, 2002. Um, I was planning to come out here in 2001, but that was when I was going to do Chicago, and I did my calf. So. I came out here for three weeks and I, uh, I ponied up with a guy called Andrew Leatherby, who was a bronze medalist at the Commonwealth Games that year. And then I came back in 2003. And so Boulder is just, Boulder is one of these, just, it is a utopia. Like it's just like, it, it's a running mecca. But when you're driving down 36, Highway 36, and you see the flat irons in the background, like it's just, it, it's something out of the Truman Show. It just doesn't seem real. And, you know, we've got the very best cyclists, triathletes, runners, rock climbers like for a population of a hundred thousand like this is an unbelievable place to live and you know when I wanted to come here for a year like this is just where I wanted to be you know I just I loved it and you know I was still competing you know I stepped up to, to 2014 but I was trying to make an Olympics up to 2012 but I started coaching in 2010 um, and I pretty much applied the same rule that Mona had applied to me and that is you know I train twice a day every day and these are the times and you'll get three strikes and you're out. And I don't just people wanted to, to train with me and wanted me to coach them. And it just was a very simplistic um, process. And so I decided that, okay, well, if we're going to do this, like let's start up a club. And I just went with the same way that I started at the Geelong Region Cross Country Club. You know, I started the Boulder Track Club and, you know, it was extremely organic the way it was built. And, you know, I had a lot of people telling me, look, you're not going to survive here, you know, because most of the clubs that are here are, charging like two three hundred dollars for coaching and it's very elite and here i am offering fifty dollars a month for coaching and you can be a member and we do social activities and i just wanted to create a club that had kids and youth and you know recreational runners and elite runners because that's the club system that we have in australia but here in boulder it's like you're either elite or you're part of a club system the two don't interact you know and the the club system they're quite um they're quite intimidated by the elite and with the elite and this is it's probably more sub elite than elite but they're quite elitist you know and they don't you know they want they want to be put on a pedestal and they do it for ego reasons so i found it just quite dysfunctional so i went about it and it started out pretty basic and we grew it up to over a couple of hundred members and you know i had some great athletes at the time you know I had jason hartman who'd run 210 at chicago and you know laura thweet who uh, was the 225 runner at the at London and had won USA cross country champs in 2015. Sean Quigley, um, who'd made um, Pan Am and Chiba and uh, had been second at uh, at Club Cross, had won the USA Bix Seven Mile Championships. 
uh, John Gray, uh, who unfortunately passed away uh, a couple of years ago, uh, who had been second at uh, Club Cross and a few titles. And then obviously we've, you know, had this strange transition where, you know, I've got Jake Riley, who uh, just was second at the US Olympic trials, uh, but was wearing a Boulder Track Club uniform. But, you know, I hadn't been part of the club since uh, John Gray passed away. Um, the way I'd set the club up uh, was to my detriment. It was like, come in, do everything right, then appoint a board, have the board run the club, and then I would slowly just move my way uh, out, um, but have the club sustainable. Uh, what I didn't realise is that a lot of people have hidden agendas and have egos. And, and so when they move into those positions, they want to undo everything that's been done and they want to eradicate whatever someone's done. Whereas I'm about, when you come into that position, build on it. You know, like Rome wasn't built in a day. It took a lot of time for it to build on, but Rome fell in a day. And so the BTC for me all fell in a day, you know, particularly when um, unfortunately John had uh, had passed away I needed a bit of time out to try and gather my thoughts, but then a few people in the club saw that as an opportunity to uh, to have me removed. And but you know, I just sort of bit my tongue for for a while. And when we went into the trials, my athletes were wanting to wear um, Team Boulder, which is the the club that I have and the business that I have. And I really didn't want to create any ripples. And you know, when I started Boulder Track Club, my my whole mission and my whole dream was to have one day a US Olympian um, and we achieved that. You know, so even though I'm not part of the club, the Boulder Track Club got their first first US Olympian. And so for me, it was like a closing of, of the chapter to then move into the next phase of what I have now. But, you know, I, there's no regrets. You know, it's my fault. I didn't, didn't protect myself as well as what I should have. And I obviously wasn't expecting someone to unfortunately take their life. But, you know, just through that whole coaching merry-go-round, you know, it all started out great and a lot of people joined the team and I started having success with elite athletes. So then more people wanted to join and, you know, I had a problem of not being able to say no. So the club just kept growing and growing and with more people, you have more dynamics, you have more challenges. A lot of people think the grass is greener on the other side and then before you knew it, it just all exploded and, um, you know, here I am, you know, wasn't left with, with a lot, but uh, I just took what I had and what I knew and, started something new and something great and you know I'm really excited about the the young kids that I have and I'm more importantly excited about what I've learned and what I know and what I want to do um, as I move forward with uh, with this new team yeah you're you're a, you're a great person and unfortunately sometimes mate um, that can be a sitting duck for people that haven't got the best of intentions but that's just life and and we move on and we grow from that um, you've had some great athletes I love the way like the club system in Australia that you bring you bring um, the sub-elites, the club runners, uh, beginners, all in one. And we'll talk about what you're doing right now in a minute. But let's just spend a few minutes on your methodology. Um, I love so many stuff. The way you go about it, the minimal analysing, the minimal data. You take data when you need it, but you know, it's, you really keep your athletes so well-branded. Um, tell us about a few of your staples. Like We know how much Trudy loves hills. We know the three-hour run, I think, five or six weeks out. Go into that kind of stuff, um, the progression runs, which you love, the tempos, the parlance. Spend three or four minutes on the training, I guess, the really meat and potatoes of it all. For someone like a Jake Riley, so for the listeners, Jake um, qualified for the 2020 games, which obviously aren't going ahead in 21. In Atlanta, came second to only Galen Rupp beat him. So this is Troopy, one of Troopy's finest, I guess, 
coaching moments. Uh, take us through Riley's last few months, mate. Look, the training is just, it's, it is, it's just straight bread and butter. It's, uh, you know, we have a long run every Sunday, a medium run Wednesday. We do workouts on Tuesday, Friday. Um, you know, the, whatever the training workout is really irrelevant, you know, whether it's doing the progressive runs or doing the hills or doing the fart leaks. You know, I incorporate monofartlek. I incorporate deep quarters. I incorporate a, a, you know, sort of a reflective Benson's Hill session that we did in, um, in Ballarat. But honestly, the, the, the key to coaching is, is the, the personalization, the, you know, being able to embed yourself in the emotional and mental. Um, athletes today are too caught up on data. You know, it's on Strava's. Obviously, the internet's an amazing place to look at everything. And what people see are the, the weeks of the best training an athlete's done. And everyone thinks that that's what they've got to do. Like, I want to see the worst training. I want to see where people, you know, plateaued. I want to see where they were in that trough and they couldn't come out because they're the things that are really pinnacle. Like no athlete can hold themselves up for 52 weeks of the year, 365 days. It's the other training. Like it's the very basic training that you do week in, week out, month in, month out that leads to success. And, you know, I said, you know, during that time that I moved to Ballarat, obviously in 95, I had to try and, you know, um, re reorganize myself after the accident but then 96 97 98 and then leading into 99 it was just all consistent stuff i just did what mona did you know and that was that wasn't my training it was it was mona's training that was given to him from chris wardlaw and yet i never spoke a word to chris wardlaw you know i just did what mona did it was just, it was so simplistic um you know moving to the states that simplicity is not there you know it's everything is data it's looking at you know previous training cycles it's comparing to what other athletes are doing whatever seems to be the hottest training group in the country at the moment is what everyone wants to replicate and i've just done my own thing you know like i just talked about a series of athletes that i'm no longer involved with but i've had success with them you know like i had great success with with laura thweet you know she won you know three club cross country champs a u.s cross country champs um she ran 228 on debut at um, new york she ran 225 at at uh, at London, you know, Sean Quigley ran twenty seven fifty for for ten thousand meters. Um, John Gray, Jason Hartman, like even though I don't coach them, the, the training hasn't changed too much. Um, but my, I guess the, and not even my philosophy, but I think just the way I approach them as human beings has changed. Um, like I come from a system that you know, like in Australia, it's just like man up, you know, all right, you're having a bad run, go and have a beer. You know, if you're gonna have a cry about it, go home. Like just you know, like. Whereas in today's day and age, and particularly learning what I learned after John and, you know, obviously the unfortunate circumstances around his death, like I've had to change and adapt. Um, and so, you know, the success that I've had with Jake and, you know, even with some of my other athletes, I mean, on that same day that Jake qualified for the US um, Olympic team, I had a girl in Canada running the NACAC cross country championships who finished second. Um, you know, she'd had a tough last two years of college uh, come out of that injured, took a year out and then just started running with me. And I just tried to implement simplicity with her and all of a sudden she's running better than she ever has. So, you know, coaching, it's not necessarily the training. I mean, I look at guys like Sean Wounds who's had success and, you know, there's Nick Pado who's had success, Chris Wardlaw, like we've got, we've got many good coaches in Australia and their training sessions are different. Their philosophies are similar. They're not the same but it's the way they approach their athletes. And the key is not trying to smack a square peg in a round hole. And what I mean by that is that a lot of athletes 
will come to me thinking that I'm their coach for them, but I'm not. You know, we might not have the right personality that clicks. They might not have the training ethic that is required to do what I do. And they see the grass being greener on the other side. So it's just a simple thing. Well, if you coach me, you can make me a better athlete. But there's just so much more to the makeup of that individual that determines whether they're going to be successful. And a lot of athletes join groups and coaches that they expect the coach to change to mirror what they need. The reality is that's just not the right coach. There is the right coach out there for you and you need to find them. But you need to find the coach that aligns to what you need and what you have for it to work. And I've just been lucky that the success that I've had has been purely because of that symbiotic relationship that we've been able to make it work, not from a training perspective, but from everything outside of training. So the mental, the emotional, the philosophical, you know, the, all those things just add in and then it just builds a pillar of trust. And then with them, they just know that it's just good, honest work that they need to be patient with and it'll come over time. Tune in next week for part three, the final episode of The Deep Dive with Lee Troop.